Well, good morning, everyone. My name, as Jason mentioned, is Chris Pate, and I am uh, the son of Jimmy Pruitt, your pastor, Pastor Jimmy Pruitt. And I'm very, very, very excited to be here with you guys. It's so awesome to see some amazing church family and what the Lord's building here. Just have such a sweet spirit in this place. And I know God has each and every one of you here for Fredericksburg, aka Fred. That's what my my mom calls it all the Fred uh, all the time. I know that God's got each person here for you. And you have a great pastor. You know that, right? Pastor Jimmy and Annette, my mom, we go way back, way back. (laughs) And I'm going to share a little story before we do that. Um, I got a picture of my family. They couldn't be here today. Uh, I pastor a church in Houston, Texas. We started the church, uh, replanted a church in 2010. We met at Edwards Cinema Theater, where we set up, tear down weekly. And uh, we were just two blocks from Lakewood, so it was strategic. And uh, people would come by. Is this a second service? Yeah, come on in. Come on in, Lakewood. Yeah, I'll smile. It's your best life. Come on in. Let's come on. And so we did it. It was great. And we we did that for about seven, eight years, raised some money, and uh, a couple years ago, purchased a building uh, near the medical center in Houston, Texas, and God's just continued to grow our church and our family as well. In fact, so much so, uh, right here in the middle is my wife, Casey Pate, and she's not here. The family is not here because we're doing a big series back at home, and she is actually preaching right now in our service. We have three services, so she is doing it right now. And then my oldest son, Addison, is 16 years old, and he's all of 16, learning how to drive in Houston, Texas. You just pray for us. And then we've got Cadence right here. She's 13 in eighth grade. And then our youngest son, who we we thought church planning was hard. Let's just add another baby. So we have... Our youngest eight-year-old son, his name is Jackson, and he is in third grade. So that's our family. And again, we've been in Houston and just been a part of a church that God is really doing amazing things. And I know here God is doing amazing things. I want to share with you today the word that was on my heart for you, for you uh, all here today. And it's going to be titled today, Stories We tell ourselves. And I wanted to start with a few stories so you get to know me and my story a little bit, but really get to know Pastor Jimmy a little bit. So the first time I met Jimmy, he is my stepdad. So my mom and my biological father were married for about 14 years, and I was about 12 years old when they decided to get a divorce. And so my story, I grew up Um, knowing just kind of one narrative of a a mom and a dad who fought a lot, who were mad at each other a lot, very frustrated. They they were married as kids, and then they had kids as kids. And so pretty wild story. But by the time they came to me and my sister and said, we want to get a divorce, I was about 12 years old. And honestly, my thought was, yeah, probably, right? Uh, They were just, it was so dysfunctional. I saw it. It was frustrating with me and everybody. And of course, I didn't even know all the behind the scenes things, which I shouldn't have. And so that was kind of like, okay, now my parents are divorced and we are living, living in Lubbock, Texas. And I remember I went to a youth camp in seventh grade, my first youth camp ever. I'd never been away from home that long and I'd never been to youth camp. So I'm this kid, and I'm the guy that, and I'm just going to tell embarrassing stories about myself. This is my first time away like this, and so I did not use the bathroom for a week. True story. True story. And that's relevant, because I get home with my bags into a youth camp, and I'm like, where's my mom? Where's my mom? My mom, Annette, comes. She picks me up, and lo and behold, there's this weird-looking guy that's tall and handsome and has, like, the hair, and he's in the front row or front seat there, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, wh- whatever. He's like, I'm Jimmy. I'm like, yeah, whatever. Take me home. I got to use the bathroom. And I was trying to be discreet, like, Mom, I got to go. What? No, come on. Let's go eat. No, I got to go home. That was my first time I met Jimmy. So poor Jimmy, he's in there going, what's up with this kid? He's a tool. As we grew up and my mom and Jimmy ended up getting married, 
At first, I was like, okay, who is this guy? If you know anything about kind of this relationship when you have a, a biological dad, a mom, a stepmom, stepdad, all these kind of things, it can be a kind of weird relationship. And I remember being in our apartment in Lubbock, Texas, and it's about a two-bedroom, tiny apartment. So they were just trying to get things moving financially, and they had these two teenagers that, that Jimmy inherited and I remember being in our room, me and my sister had, had to share a room, and they were in their room, and me and my sister are talking, fighting, and we're getting loud, and we hear in the distance, hey, y'all, be quiet. And of course, me and my sister look at each other and like, who does he think he is? He, you ain't my dad. You know, all those rebellious teenager things going on. And I remember just having that, like, every, anytime he tried to get on to me or rebuke me or whatever, it was like, uh, yeah, we ain't there yet, bro. You know, we can't do this yet. I don't know. And, and slowly, I started gaining respect for him. And the main reason why I gained respect for him is how he treated my mom. His love for God was on display by seeing a different story than what I'd grown up with. I grew up with my mom and my dad fighting and mad and bickering and sarcastic and using us against each other. And now all of a sudden we have this different male figure in our life who's loving and caring and holding her hand when it's happening, opening the door for her, a gentleman. I'm starting to learn a different story than the story I knew about marriage, than the story I knew about family. And your pastor helped really change the family tree and trajectory of my life, much less my mom, much less our family. And it was such a beautiful picture. As I grew up, I gained respect and started like, hey, I'm listening to this guy. I, I want to be like him because of how he treats people. Of course, lo and behold, I learned it's his relationship with God as well. Another story that I remember of Jimmy is we were living in California, and he was my youth pastor. This is about three, four years later. And I'm a junior in high school, and God is slowly tugging at my heart. I was a good kid. Didn't really rebel much, but just didn't love God. Didn't have a love for God. And I remember slowly God started doing stuff into me, and Jimmy said, hey, we're going on this men's trip. You need to go with us. And I'm like, well, I'm not a man. You know, I'm like 17 years old. I don't want to go. And he said, no, Chris, come on. You, you need to go. And so I was trying to come up with all the excuses. I ended up going. And at this men's retreat, before the first service happens, where there's like preaching and, and worship and all that kind of stuff with, you know, 200 men at this place, we go off. And before we do all that, we're in, I'm in a room with a bunch of guys and we're shooting pool. We're hanging out. And I'm feeling awkward because I'm like the youngest person there. And these are all older men to me. And I'm like, okay. So I started playing pool with this one guy. He was just this tiny guy. I mean, just tattoos all over him. Found out, hey, what are you doing here? Why are you here? I'm talking to him. And he said, well, my brother last week, this is huge 300-pound guy, showed up to your church, he's telling me, and and asked for prayer and repented, and God just messed with him. Lo and behold, later I found out he had a swastika uh, tattoo on his lip, big demon tattoo on his chest, big, huge guy, and God just radically saved this guy from the occult and all sorts of things in California. And so he drags his brother to the men's retreat. So I get dragged by Jimmy. He gets dragged by his brother, and he's this big guy. His brother, who I'm shooting pool with, is this tiny guy, about 140 pounds wet tiny guy. And was just like, yeah, you know. And, and I felt like, okay, he's real. Like, we could connect and da, da, da. We get in the service, and we do worship and everything like that. And I'm like, like in the back row, like you guys back there. Like, I'm like there. I'm just kind of looking and watching everything. Okay, it's a bunch of men. At the end, there's an altar call, and men just start pouring to the altar and crying out to God. And I mean, God moved. I've never seen anything like this. This wasn't my background to actually see like the power of God like this. I was used to church that was just like, stand up, sit, stand up, sit, sing, talk, open, go, bye, right? <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't like God moving and doing things. And so to me, God was just kind of a part of a story, but not the story. So lo and behold, they have worship and everything happened. I'm talking to one of my friends. Next thing I know, there is this chair that flies across. 
And I look, and it's that guy I was playing pool with, and he's got about five guys holding him down, barely, and he's slinging them off like they're nothing. Again, 140 pounds. They can't get, and they're praying and yelling, and he is like crawling around like an animal. And I'm going, what did he bring me to? What is happening? I am freaked out like you would be. This is happening. Going, I mean, they're trying to hold him down, and they're, Jesus' name, ah, they're yelling, and all that. He's just like, ah. And Pastor Jimmy gets right up next to him. He was my youth pastor at the time, and stepdad gets right ready, and he goes, just like this, in Jesus' name, be still. And the guy went, on his face, nothing. If you've ever had a problem respecting authority, <laughs> respecting your parents, when you see that, you're like, hey, whatever, bro. Hey, uh, you, uh, take out the trash. Oh, all right, okay, okay. <laughs> For the first time, I went, well, there's power behind this message. Like, there's something more to this than stand up, sit down, show up Sunday, leave. There's something more happening than just gratuitous prayers, but God is moving in those prayers. And it started rocking my life to where, Jimmy, like, help me. I need some help. And it began a trajectory and a fear of the Lord to not just go, man, Jimmy's really awesome, but Jesus is really awesome. This picture behind me, I live in Houston, Texas, is a picture of a protest and an anti-protest. There's a group that was a pro-Muslim group and an anti-Muslim group, and they found each other through Facebook pages that told them to meet downtown Houston, Travis Street, 2016, to protest the Islamic church right here. What's interesting is my, uh, one of our elders in our church actually lives on the eighth floor of this building. So he was there watching this protest and them yelling at each other. And he said at one point there was some guy with like bubbles, just <laughs> bubbles all over. So it's just a weird story in the Houston Chronicle. And I tell you this because the most interesting part about this protest, which we see throughout the story constantly in the narrative of our culture, of America, of division and different stories. And all, we constantly see these stories and these things. But what was happening behind the scenes two years later, it came out to the public and in the Houston Chronicles, this is their quote, separated by Travis Street and the Houston police, the two groups shouted at each other. The pro-Islamic center counter-protesters had a loudspeaker and were able to drown out the other side. Neither realized that none of the organizers of both events were even there. That's because they were both thousands of miles away in St. Petersburg, Russia at the time. Russian trolls telling a story to bring division Frustration, a greater divide. This is not new. We've been doing these types of soft warfare for years as Americans as well. Because if you can put in a story or propaganda, you can create division. Now, did bigotry, racism, was it started through these Russian trolls? No, but they know how to use it to create a different narrative. Neither one of these groups, as they show up to protest, they're looking for the leader going, are you, did you start this page? No, did you? No, I just showed up. Nobody knew, and it was on the outside, a different entity going, I'm going to cause some division. Because we all have stories that we're hearing, that we're listening to, that we're buying into, that is either creating unity and a beautiful grand narrative, or it's constantly creating tragedy in our lives and the lives around us. I'm scared for the story that we grow up with and then believe as the grand story in our life. It makes me nervous to think, what is the story that we are believing, that we are telling ourselves, that is really putting us on a path 
either life or death. And we all have it. If I go around this room, like you can hear your story, your story, and your story, and how you grew up, and your family, and, and your values, and who you are. But what is the story? It's interesting to me. I found, if you know anything about Barna, Barna is a, is a group that does a lot of statistics specifically with the church. And he found this, according to research conducted by Barna Group and the creators of the Alpha Course, he says this, nearly half, 47% of practicing Christian millennials or churchgoers who consider religion an important part of their lives believe that evangelism is wrong. What story are they believing? Specifically, that it's wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. That's wrong. And it goes on to say that the impetus behind this is that their concern, not afraid of the message as much as concerned that it appears judgmental. But here's the question. Is evangelism a subtle form of spiritual pride? Is the message and the story that the church carries, that is the grander narrative, is that a wrong story? Is that a judgmental story? Maybe we have the wrong story. Maybe what's going on in our head is not the right story. Maybe what we think is right or consider as factual is not just like these two protest group yelling at each other and Christians that say evangelism is wrong. What story are you believing? Are we believing? What's the message of the gospel? Jesus came and he carried with him stories, parables. And he would share these stories because he didn't just come in and say, here's a list of the right ways to live and a list of wrong ways to live. He shared a story because a story, as you know, impacts the very soul of you. Because you can relate to that story. In fact, our, our world loves story. I mean, all the movies and the billions of dollars that are made on Avengers and the new Lion King animations and all these kind of things. It's because we love story, but because within us there is a story that God has put in our heart. But is it the right one? Jesus had to constantly come in and say, redirect. No, here's the right story. Don't believe those Russian trolls. Don't believe that, because here's the deal. This happened from the beginning. The Garden of Eden started this way. You have Adam and Eve, and Satan didn't come with a stick. He came with a story. Did God really say? See, we understand, especially if you have a military background, that there are two types of weaponry or military. You've got your warfare. You have your hard warfare. That's your tanks and your guns. And, and we, we've got these things, but there's also soft warfare. And it's the propaganda and the story that we can tell to discourage or cause disunity in a whole group of people that is actually more powerful now than ever before with the invention of all of the digital anxiety that comes our way as you open up your phone every day and go, oh my gosh, what happened again? Who tweeted what? How did this work? Constant barrage of story. It can frame the way you live and the anxiousness that you live by and the fears that control you and the idea that Christianity is just judgmental. It's the story that we have wrong. And Jesus came and loved to share a different story. Let me share, I think, one of the most powerful stories, and it encapsulates the gospel. Many of you guys are familiar with the story, especially if you've been at church even a minute. You've heard the story that we're about to share in Luke chapter 15. But I want you to put on, maybe even don't get so familiar with the text. There's layers to the text. You might find today something you've never seen, and God can write his grand narrative on your heart again. That's the passion of the stories we tell ourselves. Let's look in the scripture right away, right here. Luke 15, verse 1 says this. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, to Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So 
he told them this parable. Don't go too fast. When you read the Bible, you should read it about three miles an hour. Take it in. It's not meant to be sped read. Because the Bible's written for you, but it's not written to you. So you better learn some things about who the people are that he's talking about. So here's the deal. You have two groups of people following Jesus, tax collectors and sinners and scribes and Pharisees. I'll call them this, the rebellious and the religious. And they're following him around, and they're all mixed together. So here's where we're going to divide this church. You guys are the rebellious. I'm sorry. God bless you. The good thing about the rebellious is you might have rebelled, but you're starting to follow Jesus. Like, you want to know about Jesus. You want to party with Jesus. Then you got the religious, and you just grumble a lot. Here's the deal about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, though. They actually started off well, and let me tell you, they knew the word of God. They would have, scholars would memorize, memorize the Torah, the scriptures, the Old Testament. They knew the word. And that's the group Jesus is looking at And so he says, ooh, let me tell them a story. Two different groups. Verse 11. And he said, Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. Two groups of people? Two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now stop. We're familiar with this story, but let's really think about what's going on. Two sons. The youngest son comes to the father, right? And he says, I want my stuff, and I want it now. I want my money, and I want it now. And the father looks at Here's the miracle of the story. The father's like, okay. In order to get it, look at what it says. It says, and he divided his property between them. He didn't have a 401k with the money, and he's just going to give him his portion. In fact, his portion was his land, and his, his land was everything. Their land could have been with them for generations. I mean, to have a land, the whole point of exodus and going and getting inheriting your land. And so a father to have a land and the son to say, give me my portion. I've got to sell off what's been in my family. What was rightfully mine was a portion to me in order to give you an inheritance now. This culture at the time, and even now if you go to the Middle East, it's a shame-honor culture. And in an honor-shame culture, if a younger, if the son goes to the father and says, I want my stuff, and I want it now. You know that inheritance I'm supposed to get? When you pass, I want it now. That's the same thing as saying, I wish you were dead. You're dead to me. Mr. Wonderful, you're dead to me. Shark Tank, there you go. You are dead to me. I don't want to have anything to do with you. I'm done with you. I don't want relationship. I just want your stuff, and I want what is mine rightfully. And in an honor-shame culture, listen, Jesus is painting a picture of the worst sin you could do. It it would be better if he found out, if the father found out his son was a serial killer in this honor-shame culture. True, facts, I know. I have 18-plus nations represented in my church every Sunday from all over the globe, and this is such a big deal to dishonor your family this way. And the father says, okay, Divides the land, property between them, verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. Oh, there's a clue. This isn't a a Jewish area. This isn't Israel anymore. We know now he went out to a Gentile area because Jewish people would never farm pigs, by the way. It's not kosher. So he had left his whole country, everything. Verse 16, and when he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, And no one gave him anything. 
17. But when he came to himself and he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, this is key, listen, father, here's what I'm going to say, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. If you've ever had to have a really hard conversation, you typically rehearse it over in your head. I'm a pastor of a congregation in Houston, so I know, and and you have to have a lot of hard conversations with people. And so I'll be in the shower, and I'm thinking, okay, here's what they're going to say. Here's what I'm going to say. Okay, i got to rehearse. Here's how I'm going to say it. Here's what they're going to say. And that's what he's doing. He's going, okay, this is a hard conversation. Why? Because if his father even saw him coming near him, he would have every right in their culture to kill him right away. You squandered everything. That was my family. That was my land. You're done. So he literally could have been going to his death. He's rehearsing, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. This is what in Christianity we call repentance. Not just before man, but before God. I've sinned. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I'm not worthy to be a son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Maybe at some point he went, my dad really is good. Even the servants he treated well compared to how this guy treats me. Why did I leave that relationship? I'm not going to go in expecting to be a son again. I'm just going to go in expecting to be a slave. Verse 20. And when he arose and came to his father... But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now, get the scene. Don't go too fast. He's a long way off. The only way the father would have seen him a long way off is if he's actually looking for him. I still want my son the compassion in the heart. And then imagine the son's walking, like getting ready, rehearsing in his mind, and his father comes running up. What would you think? Oh, he's about to kill me. And he embraces him, and he kisses him. And the son goes into his prepared speech, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Exact words, right? I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And they began to celebrate. The son has the father running, barrel, hug, embrace. I'm going to go into my speech. And he doesn't get to finish his speech before the father cuts him off. He says, I don't care about that. He doesn't even let him say, but just treat me as a slave. I went from a son, and now I just, I'll do anything just to be a slave. And the father says, I'm not even going to hear it. I don't care about what you say right now. And he adopts him back. That's what this robe, this ring, kill the fatty calf. You are now a son again. You don't have to say anything more. Just the simple fact that you came back. My direction is enough. This is what I've been longing for. Look at the passion, compassion of the father and the heart of this father. Isn't this a beautiful story? So often we end it right there and we do an altar call and say, just come to God. Those who are rebellious, this side of the room, (laughs) joking, come. And that's not all bad. It's just not complete because there were two sons. Jesus isn't done with the story. The rebellious son, come back. But what about the other son? Now, his older son, dun, 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 was in the field. He's working. He's serving. He's sweating. 
He's doing his duty. And as he came and drew near the house, he stinks, he's gross. You ever worked on a farm or on a ranch? It's hard work. Like, you're like, oh, I got to go to Starbucks and barista again. Okay, go milk a cow. Go build a fence. You know, it's hard work. I come home, I smell like coffee. Right, okay, <laughs> hard work. As he drew near the house, he's walking home. He's like, okay, I'm going to go home. He heard music and dancing. And he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. I think it's interesting that Jesus didn't say he calls his dad over. He calls one of the other servants. There's no seeming relationship with the father. And he said to him, the servant said, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. This older brother's working. He's toiling. He's doing his thing. He knows what he's supposed to do, and he's been in line the whole time. He's been right. He's been proven. He's been responsible. Just like the religious side that Jesus is talking to, we're doing the right things, we're upholding the law, we have 613 commandments, we're doing them all. How dare he eat with drunkards and welcome them in? We're the right people, we're the chosen ones. And this is how the brother feels, and he hears the music. And religious people hate music and dancing and celebration unless it includes them. It's about them. And he finds out what happened. And that his dad went to Crossroads Steakhouse and got the fatted calf. And he's angry. Jesus continues. His father came out and entreated this. I love this. Imagine the servant goes back like, hey, your son, he's out there. He didn't want to come in and hang out and celebrate. He's mad. And the father, the same way, ran to the son. He came to the older son. God's after the rebellious and the religious. I'm going to go out to him too. I'm going to entreat him. You know, he didn't have to. He could be like, why aren't you in here? You come to me. No, I'll go to you. And he entreated him and look what it says, but he answered his father, the older son, said this, look. You ever talk to a family member? Look. Mm. These many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, he couldn't even call him his brother, when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him? And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead, and he is alive. He was lost and is found. Story over. And Jesus leaves the religious side hanging, going, there's a celebration. Are you coming in? We don't know if he does. We don't know the rest of the story. It's like Jesus was just trying to preach to the religious community to say, can you celebrate the fact that the father gets his kids back? Here's why the older son was so angry. How many in here are oldest siblings. Oldest, you're the oldest in your family. Okay, youngest in the family. We know this, middle kids, we're just weird, right? So we know this dynamic. <laughs> typically, well, we're stereotyping, but typically the oldest person in the family is the responsible one, right? They're the, they're the firstborn, so the parents treat them almost like adults. That's how I did with my 16-year-old. Like, okay, yeah, suck it up. You're fine. Put some ice on it, right? Like, we do all that, 
And then by the third kid, like the pass he drops, we kick it to him. Like, y'all figure it out, right? Like something happens along the way where that first kid is responsible, justice, they know how to work hard. There's something innate in them. In our church, we call it elder brother syndrome. And the thing that the oldest kid knows about life is that if you work really hard and you're really responsible, you will get the things owed to you. Work and you'll get it. Don't work and you don't get it. Here's the thing about the younger kids usually is they're just I just want freedom. I don't want all that. I just want freedom. And the problem with these older people know freedom comes by obeying the rules, and then you'll get your freedom. So for me, I grew up, I was the good kid. So I knew how to manipulate. We are master manipulators. I can manipulate a situation by doing good things so I can get what I really want, which is a longer curfew or more trust. And while I watched my other siblings, because they were more rebellious, get, no, no, you have to come home by nine. And I'm going, see, what you don't understand is you work hard so you can get what you want. You work hard so then you can have real freedom. If all you go after is freedom, you're going to end up with no freedom. It's called prison, right? That's what life shows you. And the older brother knows this and can manipulate this. So he's angry when he sees his father bringing his, his younger brother for nothing. Because I've been the one, look at it, he said, I've been the one slaving. See, what's interesting is the younger brother came in, started as a son, came in saying, I just want to at least be a slave, and the father made him a son. But see, the older brother was a son, but always just considered himself a slave. You can be in Christ and like in church and do it, but not have the spirit of sonship. And this is what Jesus is speaking to as well. There's another thing about this culturally. When you're thinking about inheritance, this culture at the time was called a primogenitor culture, which means the first, the prime, the first son gets a double portion of the inheritance, and then it's split the rest of the way between all the other kids. Well, there's only two sons, so the oldest son is deserved two-thirds of the inheritance, and the youngest son already spoiled his third. It's gone. So when the father brings him back, the younger brother, as a son, Who is the one that's writing the check? The older brother. The older brother says, yeah, you love him, you long him, long for him, you always wanted that guy, can't even call him my brother, but who's writing the check now, dad? He spoiled all his inheritance. Anything you give him now is mine. And Jesus almost beautifully ends this grand story and narrative by posing to the older brothers and the religious in the room to say this, help them understand, it's going to take a sacrifice from the firstborn son to bring the younger brother in. It's going to take a sacrifice And Jesus comes on the scene, and he goes, listen, it's all grace. It's all God. You can't merit it. You can't earn it. You'll never deserve it. Because even just trying to do that, you're going to get yourself in trouble. See, the younger brother didn't want the father. He wanted the father's stuff. But the older brother proved he didn't want the father either. He just wanted his stuff. He just wanted a good life. I'm going to be really good. I'm going to do, obey, obey the rules. I'm going to go this, and you deserve, I deserve. You have to give me good things because I'm obedient. And Jesus comes in and says, because of the rebellion from creation to the fall, my redemption is going to come through the firstborn son sacrificing to bring the kids home. And the father's like sitting there going, come home. 
come inside and party with us because he, he's here. He's come home, and they're left out going, uh, no, I'm not interested. And Jesus looks at the Pharisees and Sadducees and says, will you come join the party? Because you're sons and daughters, not slaves. And he speaks this message to both the rebellious and the religious. My side is more the religious. I grew up good kid, doing right, not rebelling against my parents, but man, I didn't love God. I was just doing it ultimately because I knew how to manipulate a situation to get what I wanted at the end, not to get the father, but to get his stuff. And religion can do that if you're not careful. There's good religion. There's great religion. The book of James talks about good religion. But let me tell you, at the heart of a religious spirit is God, you owe me. So when something bad happens, you're mad at God. Instead of God, you gave me. An inheritance as a son and a daughter. I'm brought back into your family, into your kingdom. I'm home The question for everybody today is, what story, what narrative are you telling yourself about God? Does he just want your acts? Are you just feeling like a slave? Are you just rebellious? I need my freedom. I don't care. But do you want him? Because that's what he offers. It's loving, compassionate God willing to run to you willing to come to you when you're angry and bitter because things aren't going your way. What an amazing father. And what an amazing son who said, Dad, I know they rebelled. I'll sacrifice my life to bring the kids home. That's our story. That's not judgmental. That's powerful. That's the gospel that we preach That's the story we need in our heart, in our life. God, I want you. I want you. Not just what you can do, but I want you. Second question. The narrative you feed yourself is the narrative that you tell others. If we're struggling in evangelism and growing in the gospel and people coming to God, maybe it's because... We have the Russian trolls in our head telling us the wrong story. Maybe we forgot the story of God that includes both grace and truth, that includes both mercy and movement, repentance. But at the end of the day, we get him. I want to ask the worship team to come up. We're going to have our prayer partners up here. And I want to ask everyone, will you stand with me? As we position our heart to worship, we close the service today. Here's, before I pray for us and the worship team sings, where are you today? You've you've done the church thing a long time, you've done the religious thing a long time, like you've got your P's and Q's, like you've got it. But maybe your heart is still like the elder brother working, 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 but not in relationship with the Father. Sometimes I think we have to recalibrate our life and go, why am I doing, oh yeah, it's because of him and his grace. Maybe you've been rebellious and you've been running from God and you're like, no, I'm not interested in that stuff. And somehow you found yourself here today and God's going, I'm running to you as much as you're coming back to me. This is the gracious God we serve. Will you pray with me, Father? We love you. We recognize, Lord, our need for you. We thank you for Jesus, for being the son that sacrificed his life to bring us home. Lord, we just cry out as you cry out to our world, come home to a good father, to a loving father who wants to give you a purpose and an identity as a son, not as a slave, as a daughter, not as a servant. Thank you for that type of love and that message that you brought to our world and demonstrated to our world. 
We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.